broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. The holidays are here, and it's time to head to the Heritage Meat Shop for some juicy Berkshire pork roast, tender Piedmontese steaks, traditional Christmas goose, and duck. Our world-famous charcuterie and fresh meats are guaranteed to please everyone, whether it's a party of two or 200. Be sure to stop by the Heritage Meat Shop to make your holiday celebration a delicious and memorable event. The Heritage Meat Shop is located at 120 Essex Street in the historic Essex Street Market on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Call 212-539-1111 to order now. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are the principals of Groundworks, Inc. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. So, Alice, today is the vernal equinox. Ah, yes it is. For us in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the shortest day of the year. And from tomorrow on, the days begin to get longer, and our part of the world starts tilting towards the sun again. I hate the short days of winter, and I know you do too. Yes. <laughs> so I thought that we could transport ourselves to the other side of the planet today, to the Southern Hemisphere and to Australia, where today is the first day of summer. Right, because it's Friday. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And where a continent's worth of unique plant species awaits us. <laughs> and where the water in the toilet goes the wrong way. Does it? <laughs> I don't I've know. never been. <laughs> anyway, so according to the Australian government's Department of Affairs and Trade website, Australia has about 1 million different native species. And more than 80% of the country's flowering plants, mammals, reptiles, and frogs are unique to Australia, along with most of its freshwater fish and almost half of its birds. So why is it so unique? Well, Australia's geographic isolation has meant that much of its flora and fauna is very different from species in other parts of the world. Most are basically found nowhere else. However, some closely related species are found on the continents which once made up the ancient southern supercontinent called Gondwana. You're going way back now. I'm going way back. (laughs) This Gondwana continent was covered in rainforests and ferns 300 million years ago. And Gondwana included South America, Africa, India, and Antarctica. So most of Australia's flora and fauna have their origins in Gondwana, which broke up about 140 million years ago. Right. We've all seen that map of the continents shifting. Yes. Sixth grade geography. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then about 50 million years ago, Australia separated from Antarctica as it drifted away from the southern polar region. Its climate became warmer and drier and new species of plants and animals evolved and came to dominate the landscape. So that's our brief sort of geologic survey of, uh, of Australia. <laughs> the one, two, threes And why of it's so different 
That's why it's got to be different. Um, so today we have a special guest calling in all the way from Australia, Roger Elliott, who's an author, plantsman, entrepreneur, and award-winning horticulturist. Besides authoring more than a dozen books, Roger has many accomplishments to his credit in his long career in horticulture, including the gold Veach's Memorial Medal from the Royal Horticultural Society. Which Extremely is, prestigious. Yes, yes. Very few people get it. He's in the company of uh, you know some other uh, famous horticulturist we will talk about today and he also got the australian institute of horticulture award of excellence for outstanding contribution to horticulture welcome roger thank you very much and greetings from down under (laughs) i just wanted to hear i wanted to hear that accent so badly (laughs) i'm dying to i'm sure we sound equally interesting to you So uh, you've been doing your homework there a little bit, you know. We we can't we we Americans can't look you know uh, can't inferior look as silly as as, as we appear you on all TV. Think we are. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Roger, it's actually Friday morning there in Australia, isn't it? Yes, yeah, six a.m. So we're going to have a day of about thirty-one degrees today, that, and uh, it's our our longest day. So yeah. Well, what's really strange is that it's probably about 60 here today. Fahrenheit. Freakishly. Yeah. It is very unusually warm. It's like a spring day for us. Well, we really appreciate you getting up really early. Only We can only ask horticulturists to get up early, that early to be on the show. That's right. (laughs) No one else will do it. so let's um, let's begin by talking about the the flora of Australia. We we have to of course talk about Captain Cook's expedition making landfall at what is now appropriately named Botany Bay in April 1770, and of course the early work of Sir Joseph Banks. Can you tell our listeners what they found in their botanizing and, and some of their you know major contributions to to horticulture? Yeah, fine. Well, look, they they just found it so strange when they they landed there. And um, there was, would you believe, a Banksia, which was named after Sir Joseph Banks, Banksia serrata, or saw Banksia. But there were different uh, acacias, or we call them wattles, and a whole range of different pea plants, pea-flowered plants. Australia is just so rich in pea-flowered plants, but there was a plant called Indigophora australis, which Indigophora, indigo, the dye, comes from. But uh, And there were also... Uh, things like um, a plant called Ptosporum undulatum or undulatum. And uh, people on the West Coast would know that as Victoria Box, West Coast of USA, and where it's, where it's quite popular, it has a beautiful perfume. Um, so th- that was, you know, a few of the plants. There were uh, another plant called Pultonia, uh, the, the pea flowers there. And uh, they saw lots of other things. And what happened was that uh, Banks thought, right, he needs to get some people out there collecting. So in, in 1803, he sent out a chap called George Cayley, and uh, he, he collected quite a lot of things. And in 1803, he actually sent back a hundred and different, 170 different uh, species of plants back to Banks, and, uh, and they started growing them at, uh, at Kew uh-huh. Gardens and things like that. So there, there was a whole range, big trees, shrubs, ground covers, uh, quite quite a lot of strange-looking plants. It must have been enormously exciting because it was so very different from the the continental and the British plants that they were, you know, familiar with for centuries. No, that's right. And a, a lot of the plants they would have seen 
had hard leaves, which was, you know, that's one of the things of a lot of Australian plants. Even though some of them be very narrow, they're still very hard, and uh, right. they would have been used to a lot of soft foliage plants. Right. Uh-huh. And so there was things like, you know, grevilleas too um, in the protea family, which I think we'll talk about later on. Um, so, yeah, a, a tremendous uh, array of plants for them to... Uh, to try and come to grips with and work out what they were so they didn't know the names and uh, I think they even made up names uh, for some of the plants they found. Yeah, I mean, they were they were basically in a sort of, I mean, they were on a whole new continent and they had, a, you know... It's a new language, a new world, literally. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, they were like in the Garden of Eden. I always imagine it that way when they get there and they just see just things that just don't relate to anything that they are familiar with, you know. Right. And Banks was the director of the Royal Society, right? And he was a, a wealthy uh, gentleman who really was the driving force uh, to develop Kew and the Botanic Garden there, That's right, right? yeah. I think he was unofficially the, the first director of Q, and right. uh, so yeah, he he was a person who was a, a he was also a very competent naturalist himself. So it wasn't just his money doing things, but he he was very knowledgeable. And uh, I've just been reading a book called The Brother Gardeners. I don't know if you yes. people know about that. Yes, Andrea Wolf. Uh, yeah. It's by a lady called Andrea Wolf. Yes. W-U-L-F-F. And it tells a story about this group of gardeners, including um, Bertram, uh, sorry, Bartram from America and uh, other people, and Carl Linnaeus from Sweden, and, and how they were all working together to introduce a lot of different plants. So, uh, and it's a fascinating book if people get hold of it. Um, it's on it's my bookshelf for winter reading, that's for yeah. sure. I already bought it. I'm I read that last year, and actually she um, she's going to be, she has a new book out. Well, it, it, it's been out for a few months, Um and we're she's going to be on our on our show. Um, okay. Yeah, in uh, oh. in February, it's her new book or the a most recent book is called The Founding Gardeners, which is all about early American presidents and their farming uh-huh. horticulture backgrounds. Yeah. So yeah, she's okay. she's a great read. Yeah, easy to that's, read that's too. Good. Well, let now yeah. the plant that most people associate with. Uh, Australia, I think when you when you say name an Australian plant, I think people the first thing that comes to their mind is eucalyptus. I mean the the ubiquitous koala bear, right? You know, munching on <laughs> yep. eucalyptus. But as you were saying, there's a huge diversity of flora, and there's species in the genera such as acacia, Malleluca, grevillea, and many more. And these are just not families of plants that we hear about in North America. Um, can you tell us, you know, you were describing how some of the leaves are kind of hard. Can you tell us about some of the unique adaptations and characteristics of these families of plants that, that make them kind of special and unique? Yeah, it looks fine. As far as the acacias, many of them don't have actually, they don't have true leaves as we, we know them. They're um, often very narrow, very hard. Some of them uh, got lots of gray hairs over them. And, um, this is because many of them come from dry areas, low rainfall areas, so uh, they want to try and, uh, you know, restrict the, the loss of moisture from the foliage and it also re- helps reflect the sunshine and things like that. And uh, acacias are very good, like lots of many other legumes, because they, the soils in Australia are really basically quite poor over a whole range of Australia. And so the 
things like acacias can fix nitrogen to the soil via their roots, via their little nodules on their roots. So that's one way they've adapted. Things like malaleucas, sometimes they're called honey myrtles, sometimes they're called paper barks. But one of the things that they have done um, with their papery bark, this is really one of the things for protecting them from fire. Uh, because there's this very thick papery bark. It, it will burn a bit, but uh, it protects the inner parts of the of the trunk where the, all the moisture flow is going to be for, uh-huh. you know, keeping those plants alive. But um, also things like malaleucas and even grevilleas for that matter, too, many of those plants produce flowers which are rich in nectar, and we have quite a, a large population of nectar-eating birds, we call them honey-eaters, and uh, this is their way of actually having their flowers pollinated so that the seed is set and therefore they continue on, you know, they just don't die out. And so that that's a really important adaptation there. I love the form follows function aspect yes. of, <laughs> of plant design. <laughs> So you were saying, Roger, about um, the grevilleas? Yes. They're members of the protea family, and uh, one thing about most of those members, they have things called proteoid roots mm-hmm. or cluster roots. They're very, very fine. They look like little lumps. Um, and these, because our soils are so poor here, and uh, things like phosphorus, you know, we don't have much phosphorus in, in most of our soils. And um, if people are cultivating, you know, grevilleas or even banksias and they they put on fairly high phosphorus fertilisers, the plants will just end up and die. It's a bit like a drug overdose in a way. Uh-huh. But hmm. in, the poor, in, in the poor soils, the, uh, these proteoid roots actually um, can help just with extracting the smaller small amounts of phosphorus and making use of that phosphorus very efficiently so that that's a that's, that's a really a, important adaption but um that's very interesting it's not, not only mem- sorry no go on it, no it's not only the members of the protea family have these proteoid roots some of some other families have them too so it, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but it's and and also as i mentioned before as far as the pollination by nectar-feeding birds and nectar-eating animals too. We have some little little marsupials which also do pollinate, you know, members of that uh, protea family too. Sure. Well, I was also reading that Australia is the driest inhabited continent on Earth. Is that true? Yeah, that's right. Yes, very, so, very true. And you were saying the soil's really, so, really poor, but it's very rich in biodiversity. And I found it really interesting to read that you know, being very dry, droughts and also human activity leads to fire. And isn't it true that that um, that fire is a key factor in the adaptation of some Australian plants? That there are some that are actually fire resistant. Yes, there there, there are, and uh, there, there are quite a, a lot of plants, and especially in some of our in or drier, slightly inland areas, we have a lot of the. Um, saltbush family plants, you know, chenopods, people might know them as that. And, of course, they they don't burn. But uh, some of the more extraordinary examples are eucalypts. 
and we we tend to call them mallies. There's a group; they're multi-trunked, um, sometimes shrubby mm-hmm. uh, eucalypts, and uh, they have this huge woody face, like a great big burl under the ground, uh, called a lignotuber. And that, if a fire goes through, um, the top growth might be burnt, but then the plant responds by putting out new growth from this lignotuber. And some of those lignotubers are huge. Um, with some of the species of uh, Mallee eucalypts, there are plants which actually cover, the one plant covers actually many acres because over time this lignotuber just keeps growing and growing and growing. And uh, so that's really a safety valve for some of these plants. That's amazing. I also read that there's some species of orchids that will only flower after a fire in response to smoke, which I found extraordinary. Yeah. You don't find those on the market. Yeah, no, that's right. There's um, especially what we call our donkey orchids or diurus. There's another one called pyrorchis, which means fire orchid. Uh, Red beaks, they come up. um, Spider orchids, caledonias. They respond very well, but but there's even species within the same genus who don't respond. So it, it, it's it's fascinating just this thing how you know they belong to the same genus of plants, um, but um, some will respond to fire, others don't. Hmm. But um, you know there have been records when we thought uh, some of the orchids were extinct in areas, but um, because there hadn't been fires there probably for 50 or 60 years. But then after the fire goes through, these orchids come up, mainly because there's no competition for them. So, you know, they've got light. And uh, usually after our bushfires, there's rain comes. So it's it's just a perfect time for some of these plants to to show their wares. Hmm. Well, uh, we have to take a little bit of a break uh, for station identification. (laughs) Um, Please stay with us, Roger. In, In just a minute, we'll be right back. Stay tuned to We Dig Plants. River broke the bloodwood and the desert oak, holding wrecks and boiling diesels, steaming 45 degrees. The time has come to say farewell, to pay the rent, to pay our share. Welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We are uh, in Australia this afternoon. We wish. <laughs> um, we're speaking with a, a, an amazing plantsman. And uh, uh, Roger, welcome back. You're still on the line? Thank you. Okay, good. good. Thanks. Um, so you have authored a book, a very important book, called The Encyclopedia of Australian Plants Suitable for Cultivation, uh, which was co-authored with David Jones, and it was 20 years in the making. That's a very remarkable achievement. Can you tell us about the process of evaluating and selecting certain species for that book? 
Yeah, look, fine. It's um, one, one of those things I know. We were slightly conservative when we started off this whole project, and it was just going to be three volumes. And we, David and I, worked out what we were going to do, and uh, David was going to concentrate on the subtropical and tropical plants, and I was going to do the temperate and arid and subalpine things. And so we, we worked it out. David was living in northern Australia at that stage. And uh, so we thought, yeah, that's fine. And uh, as, as things went on, people kept asking us, saying, look, we need more information. Also, we've got these plants growing and you haven't mentioned them. So in the end, it ended up being nine volumes. Right. And uh, that's why it took, took so many, many years, I suppose. <laughs> but um, it, it was one of the things we, we tried to select plants which were being grown and what we thought were suitable you know, had potential. So we weren't just covering plants for gardens. It was, uh, you know, plants for forestry. There's plants for revegetation projects and, right. and a whole range of things. Right. So it was, we tried to make it uh, all-encompassing, and so hence the uh, the nine volumes. But it was wonderful to have a publisher who who went along with that. You know, when they said, you know, the initial contract was for three volumes, but uh, we just said to Louis Lothian and they said, look, Louis, we need to do another volume. And right. so he said, OK. But in the end, they said they, they made a cut-off point and we, we had to finish. Yeah. Yeah, and if you're going to call it an encyclopedia, you know, it needs... Then you have to be <laughs> comprehensive. Right. <laughs> well, you were also the founder yeah. of the Austroflora Nursery in the 1960s and 70s. What was the Australian plant industry like back then? Uh, it, was, it was fairly small. Uh, there were quite a number of small nurseries, often just, you know, family-operated nurseries. And um, we, we were fortunate in a way because there was a fairly large nursery that, that closed down at that stage, and we were just able to fill that, that gap. Um, but in, in the 1960s, we had quite a long long drought, uh, just as we've just been through a 10-year drought here now. Um, and a lot of people did lose quite a number of plants, which we would tend to call exotic plants, um, rhododendrons and other things like that. And so there was a swing to Australian plants. And also at that same stage, the conservation movement within Australia was really, you know, beginning to gain momentum and, and people became interested in their own flora and fauna. Right. And so that was quite beneficial. And uh, there was quite a, a few nurseries in, you know, different states of Australia really got going then. Um, there was a bit of a backlash, I, you know, because uh, some of the, the nurseries who hadn't been growing these Australian plants started growing them and, and often, in, in quite a number of cases... Sadly, the people were supplied with, you know, plants which weren't suitable for their situation. So that was because the nursery people, you know, didn't have the knowledge. Uh, but we're getting over that now. And uh, I think, uh, you know, people are, are growing many Australian plants. And with the, the last drought we've had, uh, there, there's a swing back to... There's quite a strong movement within Australia we call it the indigenous plant movement, right. where people will only grow plants maybe with a, within a five-kilometre radius of their place, like local plants, local Australian plants that uh -huh. occur in that area. They might, they might go 20 kilometres, but there, there is you know, quite a strong thing of that, of really trying to 
provide habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a quite a lot of gardeners now are pretty keen on uh, understanding the ecological aspects of gardening too. So there's more or less a holistic approach. Right. Uh, yeah, that, in that's some, yeah. in some areas, right? That's happening here in the United States too. I mean, we have our southwest yeah. region, which is probably similarly, you yeah. know, climate-wise and also going through droughts like yes. California. And they have to, you know, they they finally getting over the fact perhaps that they can't have lawns like in England, you know? Right. No, no. No, that, that's right, and uh, I just know the California Native Plant Society, they're pretty pretty active over there, yeah. too, so in in, uh, in spreading their, their, their local plants, which is great. Right. And you're also um, a partner and consultant with Outback Plants. Um, you were yep. instrumental in getting many Australian plants exported to growers in countries as diverse as Iceland and Brazil. So how, <laughs> how successful was that? And tell us... What worked well in uh, Iceland? <laughs> yeah, no, look, it, it, it's, it's, it's been quite successful and um, uh, been going for 20-odd oh, 20, 20 years now. But um, we initially tried to help the horticultural industry here uh, by growing plants here and then sending them across there, but that that didn't work. We had, you know, you'd, you get loads of plants sitting on the tarmac at Honolulu or right. something and, <laughs> right. and frying. And so, in the end, we ended up license we license people overseas to propagate plants. Uh-huh. And um, one of the reasons for doing this too is that um, a lot of of the nursery industries in USA and Europe were wanting so-called new plants. Yes. And we wanted to try and make sure that there was a, a royalty came back to the people that uh, that Good. got these right. plants going in the first place. And so we licensed people and there's royalties come back um, to people. Um, we breed ourselves, but we also act, as for, other, act for other breeders too. So it's... Right. Uh, and isn't, and we've got quite a, and you have a you so you're you're now licensed growers all over the world to grow Australian plants. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right through Europe, USA, uh, Asia, Japan, Korea, so, um, places like that. So, so yeah, so just and, and often the plants that they're growing are just um, they're, they're short term plants. You know, patio plants, and uh, especially yeah. for Northern Hemisphere, a lot of our plants won't survive. You know, once you start getting cold weather, they'll just right. go all yuck. Well, that's and, what I, uh, I was so just I was just going to ask. What's the what's the hot selling plant for Iceland? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was fun. Well, but they do. There's a, a propagator in Norway supplies over there, and um, they. They grow little buckies combs and scavolas right. over right. summertime. <laughs> uh, but one of one of the strange things was this a Norwegian propagator. He he wanted to try and and get uh, hibiscus into uh, Iceland. Um, you know, had, the had them flowering bench. over summer. And I know my colleague said, "Well, good luck." I always but, like uh, the oddity, you know. <laughs> well, I was interested. Yeah, oh, that's right. I yeah. was interested to read yeah, that um, you also uh, personally, I guess, organized and accompanied an assignment of Australian plants to Il- Italy. What did you bring over there? Tell us about that, Roger. Oh, fine. The Victorian government, uh, state government, they had a trade show over in Vicenza, in northern Italy, and. Um, 
One of the people over there, a chap called Count, Count, Marzotto, Ma, uh, Count Marzotto, he is one of the, the prime buyers of Australian fine wool, and uh, so for garments and things which he makes over there. And uh, they had this trade show, and it was in his 17th century villa. And uh, so they said to Count Marzotto, now look, we would you know, really like to make a payment for, for the use of your villa. And he said, no, look, just send me 1,000 Australian plants. He was a, a mad plantsman too. And so that was my, I was asked to take this 1,000 Australian plants over there. So we had to select things that tolerate snow. One of the problems in lots of the parts of the world compared to Australia is that you have alkaline soils and uh, most of our soils aren't alkaline so we have to go through the, the list and I'm not too sure what has happened to those plants now but some of them survived for quite a while they used to drag some of them inside into the orangery uh -huh. over uh, over winter but uh, no, it, it was quite an interesting exercise especially seeing my Italian wasn't very good but anyway we, we coped and uh, it was quite an interesting experience I bet <laughs> yeah well, one of the plants, one of my favorite plants um, uh, of Australian natives are the giant proteas. And, uh, of course, here in New York, we we love them, and we only really get them as cut flowers. And I think mostly they come from South Africa, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Um, yeah. It's a little, it's slightly closer. Yeah. Um, so my question to you is, what, what plants do you think... Australian gardeners wish they can grow that we perhaps take for granted in North America that they just can't grow just yeah. like we get you know I get I get plant envy when I see things like kangaroo paws and proteas and banksias yeah. what do you what do you all wish that that you could have from us if anything <laughs> from, from North America yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well look just this is probably speaking really personally but you know, I, I just find your penstemons of your high mountains over in the west just just fascinating. Some of those, and 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 people, it's very difficult for us to to grow those here. You know, we we don't have the high elevation. We don't you know have the really cold cold weather in in where most of us live. Right. But um, you know things like that. Even Lewisias, you know, some of the beautiful Lewisias. Yes. And yes. Another thing. Than I always say, just the Indian paintbrushes, right? Uh, Calisteas, right. Um, you know, they're, they're just fascinating plants. And I know some people try to grow some of the cornus from the western states and Natalii, which is a beautiful cornus. And and you know, people struggle with that here. They're, if they live in the mountains and where they get a decent rainfall, uh, you know, they they do have success, but. Uh, but there's such a wonderful, you know, flora on uh, in parts of uh, USA. Things like maples, and, and people have fairly, you know, good success with some of the plants from the East Coast in, in some areas. It, mm -hmm. um, some of them have adapted very well. But, uh, yeah, no, there's, there's lots of plants. I'm sure the mad plant collectors would love to have. From, uh, <laughs> well, Roger, if you, ever, um, if you ever need someone to sacrifice and, you know, accompany a... Uh, you know, a group of plants from North America. You can count to you. on us. I'm volunteering. Alice is too. <laughs> we'll, we'll personally <laughs> bring them over. <laughs> yeah, we carried a bank. All right. Well, we, well. We carried you a. Never know. We carried a beautiful bankasia from uh, California, from uh, San Francisco, <laughs> yes. on our lap. 
back to New York for one of our clients. And promptly killed it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, Roger, what do you, you know, we, we didn't know about the phosphorus aspect. But now we know. We know about that. Um, so, Roger, tell us, what, what are you working on now that's exciting? Uh, look, I'm revising a book, would you believe? This is a, a book on on pests and diseases, but uh, and and ailments of Australian plants, and you know it's been out of print for two and since two thousand. But it's just interesting the when going through and revising a thing like like this, just seeing how the emphasis has changed as far as just controlling of uh, right. insects and pests. And um, I know we've decided to do quite a large chapter on beneficial insects, not just the, the pests, but the beneficial things that are going to you know help control right. pests and disease. You know, right. so um, yeah, it, we're working on that. And um, so there's uh, I'm involved on on the board of directors of the Royal Botanic Gardens in Melbourne, which covers a beautiful garden in Cranbourne too of Australian plants. So, but, you know, I'm involved with that, which is really exciting. And there's a little Australian plant garden up in the Dandenong Ranges close by to us called Kawara and uh, involved there, volunteer there. And, uh, look, I'm a mad photographer, so I, I like doing that, get well, some good photographs and get some lousy ones. Yeah. But uh, also doing a bit of plant breeding and, and selection so uh, yeah look there's plenty to do and uh, just observing nature is wonderful i know i bet uh, you're i bet yeah. you have a, be- a better view than we do here in new york roger yeah <laughs> well thank yeah, you so well, <laughs> you're yeah, in the you're in victoria right you're in victoria uh near victoria yeah. in australia that's right that's the yeah, south, southeastern australia southeastern okay Interesting. Well, we're yeah, so glad yeah. that you could join us today, Roger, on our show and share your experience and your passion for your native flora and for horticulture in general. It's really amazing to to interview and to meet people virtually and otherwise who who dedicate their lives to to this you know, to the to this kooky field. To this kooky field. <laughs> um thank you so yeah. much and please send us some photographs. We'll post it on our yeah, on our website. To. All right. Okay. Look, look, thanks very much for inviting me. And I really do enjoy Brooklyn Botanical Garden. I think it's one of the most wonderful botanic gardens. Just to be in a place where there's such a diversity of people. You go, yeah. I can go into botanic gardens and <laughs> yes. you don't see that. Yes. Good old Brooklyn. And, uh, well, the next time you're in Brooklyn, look us up because we're right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Good thank on you. Okay. Thank you. Well, we'd like to thank Jack Kingsley for producing and engineering our show and to our sponsor. If you missed any part of the show, it is available via archive on our website, heritageradionetwork.com, and via podcast at iTunes. Please leave comments and or join our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc. We Dig Plants, and we're also on Twitter at We Dig Plants, or visit our gardening website, groundworksgardens.com. Happy gardening. Good on you. On December 17th, Typhoon Sendong dropped over 180 millimeters of rain in less than 24 hours and caused severe flash flooding to the northern Mindanao region of the Philippines. The cities of Iligan 
and Cagayan de Oro City were hit the worst, and the area has suffered severe damage and human loss. 654 people have been claimed dead, hundreds more are missing, and nearly 100,000 Filipinos have been displaced after the floodwaters destroyed everything in its path during the late hours of the night. The city's power and water supplies were shut down for nearly 24 hours, and many Filipinos need your help. Xavier University is accepting donations to help those in need. Please visit www.sendongrelief.org for more information. That's www.sendongrelief.org. following is a message from Jones Family Farms. Looking for that perfect Christmas tree this season? What about the perfect wine to go with your holiday dinner? Look no further than Jones Family Farm, a 400-acre working farm in Connecticut. Jones Family Farms is as passionate about education as it is about farming. Whether you're picking fresh strawberries or exploring local wines, we hope you're inspired to learn more about Connecticut farming. For more information, visit www.jonesfamilyfarms.com. It's free real estate.